This is Tabasin Siddiqui sending you all love and peace and energy and light during these times, and you're listening to Artistry. Welcome to another episode of Artistry, where art meets industry. We are your hosts, Rochelle Etienne Robinson and Stan Substantial Robinson. Today's guest is a sister who is thriving in the fashion industry. She is a sustainable fashion designer, maker, and activist. Welcome to the show, Tabasam Siddiqui. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you to both of you. You do amazing work, so it's definitely a pleasure. Likewise, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I respect your work and admire you both so much. So oh, yeah, I'm thank excited. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Tabasam, your name is beautiful. So, um, of course, I had to do my research and I was like, what does it mean? And so <laughs> in Arabic, it means smile happiness. Is that right? Yeah. So it can be as a verb, mm-hmm. which means you smile. So you, if you do actually do the action of smiling uh-huh. or it's the noun, which is smile. And it's so interesting because growing up, it was the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, I had not like a dislike for my name, but it was just really hard. No one could pronounce it. Right. Um, I was the only child, the only black girl, the only girl of color, the only one who was different always. Right. So it was just like another thing I had to yeah. um, not deal with, but another thing I had to um, I guess incorporate into my identity. Mm-hmm. So it's been a struggle. Right. It's just uh, over, I guess, recently, not recently within the last few years, but it's just a process of um, owning, accepting and appreciating all the parts of my identity. Right. And then also stepping in into owning it. Um, that's who I am to smile and I make others smile. And we have in Islam, there's a phrase um, from the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, that the, if the least thing you could do to someone, at least uh, amount of charity you could give is offer a smile. Mm-hmm. And so that's been like my mission and it's huge because when you smile, someone else smiles and you, you brighten their day. Right. So I was like, oh, this is, this is like a responsibility of mine. So I've owned it and I've been really proud of it, but that's just over time. And your last name is um, also truthful, meaning truth. So not only bringing (laughs) smile, but also living in your truth. So I I thought that was great. I was like, oh, okay, we got to talk to her about that. (laughs) We got to talk to her about that. So you mentioned about growing up. What was growing Because you, um, if I understand correctly, you uh, moved around a lot um, to different places. Uh, Tell us about that. Like, what what was the frequency? What was it that required that you and your family move? What was the reasoning behind it? And what was that experience like? Um, I feel like we're a family, like generationally, we're a family of nomads, to be honest. Mm. Um, on both sides of the family, my mother's side of the family, they're African descended indigenous. Mm-hmm. And then my father's side of the family, they're South Asian. And um, for me personally, we moved around a lot because my father was an engineer. And um, during the time of the 80s, uh, there was just a lot of companies that would, you know, which would close and then he would lose his job and then we'd have to move again. Mm. So by the time I got to fifth grade, I probably had been in, several elementary schools. Sometimes I'd be nine months in a school, three months in a school. I mean, it was that frequent. And um, the longest amount of time I spent was probably in California. So from fifth grade all through college. And Mm then when I started teaching and then when I moved to Spain, I've been there for 15 years. So those are the only two places where I've been the longest. But throughout there, I've moved to almost every continent, almost every continent in the world. and as well as the United States. As far as our family's concerned, uh, my father, he was, he was uh, born and raised in India. 
And um, at the end of the 40s, they had the huge exile where the Muslims were pushed out of um, India forcibly and violently. Wow. And they had huge migration. That was one of the lar- largest human migrations of people being expelled right. um, in, in human history. It was over a million people. It was very violent. He lost most of his family. They had to walk from India to Pakistan. He spent about 20 some years in refugee camps. Wow. And that still has affected him to today. And then looking at my family, having been stolen from Af- the African continent, brought to the United States. And also as my indigenous fam- part of the family, we were from the Choctaw Nation, being pushed off our lands into various parts of the United States, reservations, what have you. Um, it's just something that's in my DNA. Wow. And then, so I've just basically embraced change, embraced um, the, I guess, move and, and, and just, I, that's just normal for me. From And um I'm always com- almost like, especially with this whole COVID and the quarantine and having being stuck in the United States, because usually I'm in Spain, mm. um, like I'm itching to move again. <laughs> um, but that's just been my reality. Yeah. Wow. Um, you, while your time in, in Cali, since that was the longest, um, as at least for your formative years in your, um, higher education, you obtained your bachelor's in psychology and a minor in studio art from the University of California. What was that experience like? What introduced you... T- to the arts, were you doing that early on, or was that were you really introduced to that while you were in college? I've been an artist my entire life, so I they noticed um, my gift for it. It's not something I had to be taught mm-hmm. uh, when I was in kindergarten or earlier. I would actually I would have I would be, remember being art class like in first grade, and there were kids who hated art, and I was like, give me your assignments. Like I would do yes. their assignments for them because I just couldn't get enough of it. Right. Um, if I any like surface I would draw on, I would create art all the time, constantly. Um, I remember being nine years old and I created my first, like, you know, we have in fashion, you have the croquis and you have this whole lineup of like designs. I did that without knowing what that meant, what nothing about fashion. I just sat there and drew it all out. My first collection, I was nine. Wow. Um, I was surrounded by, you know, beautiful, like my, my maternal side of the family, these beautiful black women and when they get up dressed up for church it was just it's a whole affair mm-hmm. <laughs> i was surrounded by the jewelry the clothes the hats and it was just they let me go into their closets and that was it you know, <laughs> I, I had a field day and i would have like the ebony magazine and the jet magazine i have mm-hmm. also i got into vogue i mean i had all there and there was they always encouraged me but at the same time, I thought, I never thought I could be a fashion designer because when I looked at these magazines, especially when you looked at Vogue, mm-hmm. right. it looked like a fairy tale book. I didn't see anyone like me too much yeah. who, was, who were designing. And I just didn't think it was for me. Right. I, could, I, could, I could imagine it, but I didn't think it was for me. And throughout school, I um, continued with arts, but it was always on the side. Mm-hmm. I excelled in my art classes. I excelled in other classes too, my academic classes. But also there was a drive in me to heal. Mm. Um, there's healers in our family. And I've always been one to have like a caretaker role. Mm. So I thought that being a doctor was the way to go. So I was actually pre-med when I got to college. Wow. And throughout high school, I mean, all of my internships were all pre-med. I mean, everyone thought, wow, she's going to be a doctor. Right. But at the same time, they're like, but you're an artist though. Like, are you really, you want to do that? Yeah. And when I got to Davis, it was University of California at Davis, um, I was in all the pre-med classes, but when I looked at my notes, there were more art than notes per se, or like I would illustrate everything. Um, and I always walked by the design buildings and art buildings on campus. I just stand there and look at the students and I would just 
there was something pulling at my heart. Like I want to be them. It was kind of creepy because I would, because I have to pass by the design buildings on my way to like biology class. I just stand there and watch the students. I probably thought I was weird, but <laughs> I wanted to be doing what they're doing so badly. And I remember like I would, you know, on the weekends I go and buy fabric and sew and, you know, design things for people and try and create a fashion show. Like I was trying to do something on the side. So finally I was like this, um, pre-med thing's not working for me because it's not the way I wanted to practice medicine. Actually, now I think about it, if I had known about naturopathic mm -hmm. medicine, right. I would have probably done that. Yeah. The whole conventional way of the way people are practicing medicine or going towards it, it just didn't resonate with me. So I was like, this is not the healing I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So I switched to psychology. I still wanted to be part of the health profession in some way. And then I added studio art. Right. So that's where I did more. I don't know why I didn't go into design, but I did the studio art side. Um, I was trained as a counselor. So when I got out of Davis, I, um, when, I, when I was at Davis, I was a student counselor and I actually became a lead student counselor. So I was doing a lot of the mental health services for the students. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, I um, worked as a teacher. So I was a fifth grade and a high school teacher and also a school counselor. I did that in Southern California where my family was. I did that for a few years. And I still had that pull. Yeah. Like, I love what I'm doing. I love my kids, my students. I was giving 150%, but I just wasn't feeling fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what, let me, let's give it a shot. And I applied to Parsons School of Design nice. in New York City. And I thought, you know, why not just try? It's just, I, I just, this isn't teaching and it just wasn't my calling, mm -hmm. even though I did it. Mm -hmm. I got accepted yep. mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It was like one of the best schools yeah. Yeah. in the world. It's, it, and I just couldn't believe it. And um, so this was a rather, <laughs> this is interesting because when I was listening to your podcast yesterday um, and you're talking about 9-11 and this is what really, this is really interesting. My yeah. trajectory into fashion was really marked by 9-11. Mm -hmm. So when I got accepted um, and I come from a family, the women in my family on both sides were very intuitive. I don't know if people believe in this or not, but um, I do get feelings and messages about things I can't explain. Right. So um, when I did accept, get accepted to Parsons, it was, um, I was literally had bags packed, we're getting ready to go. We're literally going to the airport. Mm -hmm. I'm starting school in two weeks, mm -hmm. right? Wow. And all of a sudden, I just freeze. And I said, I'm not going. Wow. And my family just looked at me, they're taking me to the airport, my family just looked at me. They didn't question me, they just said, are you sure? I said, I'm sure. Mm. So what I did is I postponed my um, entrance into school just to keep it on the table, but just post postponed it. Yeah. Right. I go back to the school I was working at. I'm driving at, driving to work, and this is two weeks later. I'm listening to NPR, mm -hmm. hearing about the Twin Towers. Wow. wow. My dad calls me on the phone, and he's like, Beta, and Beta in Urdu means daughter. It literally means son, but it means daughter. He's like, how did you know? I was mm -hmm. like, I didn't know but something in me told me not to go. Right. So my apartment that I had, well, the school with the school um, housing, my apartment was right by the World Trade Center. Wow. The route that I would have to take to school would be the World Trade, like the, the metro underneath yeah. the World Trade Center. Wow. So I was just like, oh my goodness. Right. I mean, that along with um, your faith as well, like right. the, the like, you know, what position you would have been in as a, because uh, one of my oldest friends, um, shout out to my brother Asif, um, was living in New York at the time. And so, you know, I went to, uh, we called him just to check on him. 
see how he was doing. And he was just telling me about uh, like all of the the experiences he was having post um, the buildings falling and, you know, was just just basically saying how afraid he was and what that experience was like after it happened. And um, and so, you know, we went and just spent uh, a day with him just so he could feel safe uh, for mm-hmm. a little bit because it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. You know, we uh, when we were walking the streets um, like it took hours to walk home from where we were at the time it happened. Um, and just the stuff people were yelling, like, you know what I mean? Like people were so angry, just, uh, driving through the streets, yelling, um, just basically just looking for someone to blame. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's definitely divine. Like you having that, that, um, that fit, you know what I mean? Yeah. That intuition to know, like, um, that's powerful. So that leads me actually to a question, the question I had lined up and then, you know, you shared this. Uh, was um, how does your your faith inform your art and uh, how you, I guess, um, shape your experience experience and how you want to share it? So, so I will. So, so going back to like when I finally did go to Parsons was the following year. Yeah. So now you're in this um, play. So I'm my apartment now is down by Wall Street. So I'm seeing tanks all the time right. going into school when I'm coming back home. Um, you know, being that feeling of being watched and surveilled, sure. right? And um, I'm going to school and, you know, Rochelle knows this, you're at a school that's a private school. Mm. It's a very expensive school. I am with um, students who have the disposable income to be there. I was not one of them. Right. It was a complete struggle. I'm also there in a very, in a fashion, in a, in a how to explain it? In this very confa- uh, conventional fashion, there's just a, just a certain structure they had in a certain way they wanted you to produce fashion, right? right? The way I envisioned it was not what they wanted. And then for a while there, I was starting to do things that they wanted to do and they would um, applaud me on the things that they thought they wanted me to produce, but mm. it didn't really resonate with me. Right. And um, I think I only saw one Muslim sister also there um, studying and that was it. There was no one else. Wow. And I just felt really... I did have a, a group of people who were very supportive and we studied together and we did our fashion together. But the way I wanted to express myself in art and design, I just could, I just, I just felt like I couldn't find that space. And I always felt, I've always been the person that's been like on the fringe, whether growing up, even as an adult, I'm always on the fringe. I always have a different way of looking at things, a different way of doing things. Right. I don't really care if you don't like it. But at the same time, it's really hard because you're literally going against the grain constantly. Mm-hmm. So because I'm in this post 9-11 world now, when I'm getting ready to look for work, hmm. right, mm-hmm. that's when it's not only not finding support as um, a, a black woman designer, a woman designer. Now it's a visibly Muslim black woman, pers- woman of color designer. Right. I would get the door shut in my face constantly. They would see my work. And then when they asked me to come in, it was like, no. Mm-hmm. I even literally had, and these are big companies right. tell me, and this is not experience for everyone. This is my personal experience. Mm-hmm. They would tell me it's because of your scarf. I'm not hiring you. And I've had to, even for regular jobs, like just retail jobs just to make it. Cause I had to work. I had the, the, the very tiny scholarship I got did not cover anything. Right. And I take out loans, which that is another whole issue. I have to call the ACLU. I would have to call for legal support and tell them, apply pressure. They need to hire me. They're trying not to hire me because of my hijab, because I wear the veil. Mm -hmm. 
right? So after being denied work, I couldn't get my, my foot in the door for anything, mm. right? So finally, um, this is towards the end of my, I'm trying to hang on and stay in New York. It's extremely expensive, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> extremely expensive. And um, I finally got a position with uh, this um, avant-garde or couture designer, Miguel Adrover, and he's a Spanish designer. Mm-hmm. And it was because of a friend of mine, she worked there and she's like, Tabasam, you have to bring your portfolio in. And I was at the point, I was like, if I have to bring my portfolio in one more time and get the doors on my face, I just I can't do it. Right. I brought it in anyway. And they took my, my portfolio. I was down in Lower East Side. They took my portfolio in. And it was a very, all of them, as soon as I walked into the atelier, it was different. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was everyone in there from all walks of life. I mean, it was just, I was like, oh, I feel like this is my place. Right. You know what I mean? Um, everyone was, I guess all the people on the fringe were there, right? I was right. like, oh, these are where my people are at. So they took my portfolio in and I didn't see anyone. I didn't see the design or anything. And after like 15, 20 minutes, the whole design team came out to meet me. Wow. wow. Like, did you do this portfolio? I was like, yeah, that's my work. And it's like, when can you start? Wow. And I was sitting in there and I was just like, what? <laughs> Prior to this, um, I have to mention, I'm, I'm having like total like mental uh, amnesia here about certain things. So um, while I was still in um, Parsons, I, you know, you have these designers you look up to, right? And you're like, I want to work with this designer. And at the time it was Alexander McQueen when he was alive. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want to work for him. I really admired his work and that's who I want to work for. So I sent my portfolio to his offices in London. And this is before like, I think I did have a cell phone, but you know what I mean? This is like old fashioned how you get the messages. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I got this message. So somehow they, they called my school. My friends at school called my dorm my dorm mates told me they want you for an interview in London. Wow. So I couldn't believe it. I get on a flight. I go to London. I'm in his studio interviewing. He's upstairs in the atelier. Wow. And I was, it was, I'm still having chills now. I couldn't believe it. I'm here. I did it. Like I'm the type of person I take risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm the person that, I much rather, the fear of not knowing is, no, it's the fear of not trying. Well, what if it does work out? What could be the most amazing um, cornerstone or turning point in my life? Let's go find out. So that's why I say yes to a lot of things. And that's why I have the life I have, because I'm curious what what could happen, right? Mm -hmm. And I get the job as an internship. So I come back to the United States, and I'm like, I'm packing up. I'm getting ready to go. I'm going to move. And... Prior to that, because I'm, I've been a lifelong activist, my whole family were a family, generationally, freedom fighters, fighting for liberation, educators, healers, you name it. So this is in my blood. I was also protesting the um, Iraq war. Mm-hmm. I got arrested. Mm-hmm. And because I'm a Muslim woman, because I'm of color, they treated me differently. Mm-hmm. They treated me very roughly. I was, um, it's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Um, and they forced, they tried to force me to take off my hijab. I mean, it was really a humiliating experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm also in the books now. So when I go, and at the time, this is, you, if you remember the time during 9-11, mm-hmm. they were doing raids and sweeps when, and when, uh, when 9-11 happened, when I was still in California, they raided, our, the FBI raided our house. They came to our house, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you know, they know about who I am and stuff. And they're doing these random raid, raids and sweeps and detentions and airports and this type of thing. So when I fly out to London to take this job, I get to Heathrow. I was one of the people they randomly detained. Mm. So I was detained for eight hours. I didn't know why. 
I had no food, no water, no nothing. I get there like, I don't know what time at night. I get interrogated. Mm -hmm. They decide you're not letting you in. And they walk me back on the flight. So I'm being escorted through the airport with police. Wow. The way I look, it was the most humiliating experience. I get put back on a flight to the United States. They confiscate my passport, which is illegal. Mm. Every, it's a full flight. Everyone on the flight sees this image. There's a Muslim woman. She's being escorted on a flight by like, like, like police. Mm. This is the image everyone has in their head. I got sent back on a flight and I could not return to the UK for, I think that when I, after that moment, I returned to the UK like in 2000 something, I wasn't allowed to return. So no, <laughs> so no job. So no job. No, no job. I had closed my apartment in the United States. I come back to the United States. I was like, no apartment, no things. So from that time, I was literally couch surfing. I was living in the most disgusting hostels in New York. I couldn't even believe these places were not condemned. Wow. There's one point I was in a hostel that had cockroaches. It had like these people who were hoarders. So there was like just junk everywhere. Like I was trying my hardest to stay in the city and find work to work as a designer and get the experience. Right. And that's when I was at my last limb. I, I was like really hanging on when my friend said, the bus, come to this designer's um, studio, give your um, portfolio, just try one more time. And that's how I got that position. So mm. as you know, as a designer, they want you to work for free, mm-hmm. which I think is yes. Honestly, I, people tell me now, the must have taken on an intern, take a, I was like, if I can't pay for them, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. Right. That is, you are, that is unpaid labor. That is unacceptable. And right. all of these, and I don't want to get on a soapbox, but all of these companies are where they're at because of unpaid labor and it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're expecting me to work. So I worked for them. I had to have another job you know, just working at a bookstore. But it got to a point where they would have me work so many hours where you were getting ready for fall, um, the fashion week, mm-hmm. you know? And at this in Atelier, everything's hand done where I, I was working with tailors. I was doing everything. And the thing is, they're all Spanish. So this is how I get into my Spain life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, wanting to learn Spanish. And so I was there. And for some reason, everyone thought I spoke Spanish. So all of the other interns made me be the person to translate between the tailors who are from Spain and the Dominican Republic. And I was like, I'm not, I don't speak Spanish, but that's how I learned. And I just threw myself into the work and I found my mentor there. She's um, from Mallorca, which is an island off of Spain. And she was hard on me. I thought she hated me, Mm. but she trained me like no one else did. So I did this job and I was in, I had finally found an apartment. So I was out of the hostels. I was in Asturias and, um, living there and commuting all the way to Lower East Side every day. And I was finally got to a place where they're like, can you quit your job and work here all the time? And I was just so desperate for work because no one would hire me. I could not get any experience. So I quit my job at the bookstore, whatever I could save up, whatever I had towards the end of my time with them, I was down to literally a few cans of food. Like I'm not kidding. And I would space it out. And I just, just to see through to the fashion week. So at this time, I get a call from a friend and this is why networks are so important. Mm-hmm. So my friend, she um, knew of this one um, Muslim fashion company that just started. This is before this was like a thing. I'm not saying there were not Muslim fashion designers. When I was younger, back in California, in our community, we had, um, there were two Muslim women fashion designers and I would walk in their runway shows, right? Mm-hmm. So that also having 
this is also why it's so important for us to live our truth to do our work because you never know who you're inspiring. You are showing young people this is possible. Right. Absolutely. I saw these women, I was like, it gave a spark in me, not just beyond the Vogue magazine. I was like, wait, I can possibly do this. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, that's all I knew about modest fashion. I didn't, you know, and it's something that resonated with my faith and beliefs because I don't want to, um, for me, when I think of fashion, it's an expression of who you are. It's, it's how you convey your message to the world but for women i want to see and it also men because i design for men and women mm-hmm. um, i prefer a modest style of of expression in a sense that it's, it's balanced and it's showing your dignity and self-respect right. Right. and we lead with our ideas and our personality it's not i don't my body is sacred mm-hmm. and that's how i want to design for and i couldn't find that in the, in the companies i was working with so when I got the call from the CEO of the company, he's like, I said, listen, I'm having a, fa- I'm working for the designer of this fashion show. You can come out. And he couldn't come out, but he said, well, send us your work. So I'm at this place where I'm down to my last few cans of food. <laughs> I have no job. I'm showing for this uh, fashion show. There's a possibility for a job. I'm like, really, you're at that place where you think like it couldn't get any worse. Right. And they offered me the job. Wow. So I started working freelance. I had had to move back to California, regroup with my family because I had I just couldn't keep hanging on in New York. It was just too much. Right. And I started freelancing for them, designing their collections. And they were a startup. They had been around for a couple of years. So this is Sugar Clothing. I uh, started working for them. They're based out in Damascus. Mm. So um, they flew me out to Damascus. Wow. wow. And I said, okay, why not? I'm always like, yes, for the adventure, right? <laughs> right. And, um, it was incredible. And I'm so happy that I went and like, I'll skip forward a little bit. I eventually accepted the job because now what has happened to Syria with the wars, I mean, it's not the same. And it's, it was just such a beautiful experience culturally and historically to be there. Um, also a very difficult experience. So anyways, I worked with them and uh, freelancing, but then also I heard back from the Spanish designer and he was like, I've moved back to Spain. Would you like to join me? I was like, Spain, Syria. And at the same time, I also applied for BCBG. Oh. In LA. So there's a couple of things going on. So when uh, I went out to interview with them, um, I also thought I'm not going to get it because who I am and I just had the experience. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the team of Versace had started working there, had, took it, had taken over. And they saw my work and they're like, can you start tomorrow? Oh, my gosh. Wow something I hadn't experienced before. And, but me being the nomad, I took Spain. (laughs) So I didn't accept that job. I went to Spain and what happened was when I got there, the designer had basically lied. There was no job and I'm at the airport. He was supposed to like, you know, there was the team was supposed to come pick me up. They were, you know, I was supposed to find my place and get started to work. Nothing. (gasps) Wow. I was left high and dry. My Spanish was not good, not like it is now. Mm-hmm. And the only person I knew was my mentor, the one who was so hard on me, called her up. She took me in. I lived with her and her family for about two months. Mm-hmm. And I learned Spanish. I kept working. I, I, I worked under her. Like, she taught me things. Mm-hmm. And then I um, eventually, before, and since I accepted the job with, uh, in Damascus with Shukur, I thought, well, let me just, before I start work with them in the fall, let me just continue with being in Spain for a while. So I moved to Granada and, um, 
that's where I met my ex-husband. I ended up getting married. And I eventually did go to Damascus and worked. Wow. I mean, there's more to this story, but I don't know how much yeah, I want to keep I mean, going no, your journey <laughs> with it. Um, yeah, I am absolutely, my mouth was just dropped yeah. when you said you flew. <laughs> this needs to be a movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Goodness. So whatever happened with the, the designer in, in Spain? Did you ever see him again or... I was like, he he better not cross paths with me. Right. My parents I found out that the money he received, um, because also 9-11 affected him. One of the reasons why I joined up with him, he did a collection just before 9-11. There was a very Muslim-inspired collection. It was gorgeous. It mm. was a gorgeous collection. The women were all dressed. It was just this very modern, fresh, but very, you know, like in a modest way. Mm -hmm. And it was just so artistic it was beautiful but because 9-11 happened his investors pulled out they're like oh you like support muslim like i don't know why that they thought that was a bad thing right. so um that's what happened with him so anyways the money that he received from the collection i worked with him on so he was very much about i don't know i don't know what was up with him anyways um he his his politics his heart was in the right place but his actions sometimes didn't match up okay right. he was very unstable so he the money he received in the collection he bought the one i worked on he instead of paying the workers he took that money went back to spain bought this amazing loft with that money in front of the city hall wow so he didn't pay anybody and then when i got there later on i found out he had moved to cuba i don't know where he was at. i mean just a, he so i was living with this mentor who was his mentor and we would go around town and meet people who knew him, he owed money to everybody. Mm. He was a mess. He was a mess. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I don't want to cross paths. He doesn't want to cross paths with me right now. Tell us more about Damascus. So you just take the job at Sugar and then... So I, here I am, um, you know, I was, it was in my 20s mm. and um, I get to the, I'm in Damascus, right? I don't speak Arabic. Um, I've studied Arabic through my life, you know, Sunday school and stuff like that, to be able to read the Quran, which is the holy book of Muslims. Um, but to speak conversationally, no. So I'm there. I'm recently married. That's a whole other mistake. Um, but, you know, I left my, he's a, right now he's my ex-husband, but at the time he was my husband. I left him back in Spain because I, I accepted the job. I need to work, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to, to Damascus working and um, I'm in a factory with, about 100 to 200 other men it's a very conservative fact like they're they have a more conservative interpretation of islam but um so i was the only woman the only woman the head office is in amman in jordan so there were other women there and stuff like, but where i was where they actually produced because it's all we produce everything in house so the design um the craftsmanship um, the marketing the everything is done in house which is was really great so i'm there designing i take on the role as head designer. And I actually, when I started working with them, the first collection, they're like, can you do menswear? And I was actually trained as a women's wear designer. Mm. But I was, you know, how I am. I'm like, yes, I'll do it. I'll figure it out. You know, I didn't say no, I don't know how to do it. I was like, I'll figure it out. Right. So I was doing their menswear and women's wear and um, accessories. And what people don't know, um, I was a head designer and later on I became the creative director. I am the only person in the design department. I never had an assistant, except for the one time that I had to hire it myself. Wow. And this is one of the problems I had with them is the lack of support and to understand that the creative side, like, um, you can't work me like a machine. You can't work people like a machine. Right. I, when I completed my work, my role with them is like over 15, about 15 years with them, with the company, taking them from a startup to a multimillion dollar company, mm -hmm. creating over 5,000 unique 
designs for them. Mm. That's, I went through several cycles of burnout. Right. That's, I had to leave. I couldn't do it anymore. Because and, it wasn't just limited to just Damascus. I mean, this was available worldwide, right? Oh, no, no. Yeah, we were, we, um, we sold, we sell worldwide. They still sell worldwide. Mm. Um, we have, I not only designed their collections, I did their, when I was in Damascus, I would be in charge of the photo shoots. I would be in charge of just anything creative, how the look and feel of the, the business I was in charge of. And it was a lot. Wow. Right. It was a lot. And on top of it, I was in Damascus. Um, it's a very different society. Um, I can, because I've lived in Morocco, I lived in Egypt. Um, it's different. I could, it's easier for a woman who's on her own, from my experience, not for everyone, to find friends and community. I found it was easier in Egypt, actually in Cairo, and Morocco and Damascus is very different. The mm. women uh, that I would be, that I would see, would be with their friends or family. I couldn't, I was alone. I had, and, yeah. and I'd be working all day with men who were very conservative, so no one would hang out with me at lunch, mm -hmm. right? Um, I go home, I'd be by myself. I couldn't speak the language. Mm. I had to get a tutor to help me. It was just very isolating. Um, so, um, I did um, all their store designs. Uh, we actually have physical stores. Um, also just the looking, like future projections for the company. I had this foresight, but a lot of times I felt like, I don't know, is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm a woman of color? They wouldn't want to take direction from me. So there's constant struggle all the time. Yeah. Uh, they would finally take my advice like maybe five years down the road. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was frustrating. Yeah. It was frustrating. Um, so eventually, because at the same time I'm married, um, it was just too much. So I moved back to Spain mm -hmm. and I began to do the work. Um, so I've always been someone who's worked from home mm -hmm. um, and was able to imagine before it became a thing. Right. right? right. So it, this is when things in my personal life became really bad and also trying to manage working from them just like um, remotely. Right. So I would fly in back and forth to Damascus. I would go to Jordan. Um, if I had to go to do fabric um, sourcing, like in India or China, or whatever, I would do these things. There was one point um, in 2010 where they asked me to come back. They're like, we need you here. And again, I had that moment. We were in Damascus where I was having tea with the CEO. It was a night. It was a very calm night. And he asked me to come back. I just sat there for a long time. And I said, I, I can't. Two weeks later, the civil war starts yeah, in Syria. Yeah. Mm. And our factory gets taken over by the military. Wow. I had, they were sequestered. I had um, a couple of my colleagues that I worked with. One of them was tortured and killed. I had another one that was tortured um, and many more. And I can't, even, I can't even imagine what would have happened if they found out there was one woman working in that factory, what it would have happened to me. Um, and that was the last time I, I, I was able to go back to Syria um, since the war. Girl, so when's the book coming out? <laughs> I mean, seriously. There's something that you said, um, you know, during that story that I know a lot of artists, because your story is so unique. So obviously, uh, maybe 
at best, most of us can kind of identify with certain parts. But there's one thing that you said that I know every artist can um, identify with, and that's burnout, right? Like getting to that point where it's it's feeling almost impossible to keep creating um, because you feel like you've just exhausted yourself in terms of uh, your output and how much you've been able to do. When you get to that point, like how have you successfully pushed past that? I mean, I think the ways that I had to push past like, are probably not healthy. I mm. um, put up with it um, mm. because the situation I was in, and I'll mention it briefly, I was in a, an abusive marriage mm. and my spouse did not contribute to, he didn't take care of us financially. So I had to hold on to that job. And I was working 12 hours a day. This is for the time I was married to him. It was like 12 years like that. Wow. wow. And so managing the trauma that I was facing personally, then also at work expecting to create this output and not just output, but just, and because I'm a person that I like to put excellence in my work, I'm also pushing myself and then I'm also being pushed at work. Right. right. And also you have to think of, you know, there's two, like I'm thinking of, you know, a lot of the people who worked at our company, they are Syrian refugees. Mm-hmm. There are families who need, who my designs are going to, be the thing that is going to make sure, I mean, not just my designs, of course, when they're produced, but it supports so many families. You're thinking about that. You have to think, I mean, it was intense. It was intense. And um, I say now to people, and finally what I had to do, and this is last year, I finally quit my job and I quit and I didn't have a net, a safety net to fall into. Right. Um, Same thing with my marriage. I ran away from my marriage. I didn't have anything like someone waiting for me or none of that, you know, it, it got too bad. It got to a place where either I leave or I may not be here any longer. Like right. that's that bad. So my I always tell people the minute you feel like it's getting toxic, it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. You need to leave yeah, and you have absolutely. to have the faith that there's something better for you. You can, you can, um, I mean, I always, I always believe in the support of the divine, but you can create new situations for you. You have to believe there's something better out there for you. Things are always going to get better. Right. We're not exactly sure when, but they will get better. But we just do the work and we keep moving towards and um, towards those goals and doing taking small steps towards those goals and being consistent. Right. Absolutely. So my example is not the my the only thing you can extract from my example is don't you know stay in a situation that long that's that toxic. Absolutely. I would recommend it, but I didn't have any other choice at the time right. because I, um, my, I, you know, my family did the best they could to support and help me, but there comes a point where it's like, you can only do so much. And so I had to work for myself and I didn't have a spouse that was supportive. Right. Right. I had no choice. And then knowing that it was so hard to get work, even when I was in, um, in the early part of marriage, I was, you know, uh, living in Spain full time. Now I'm only there half time. I applied to other jobs. And there in Europe, it's different. So when you apply for a job on your CV, your picture goes there. Mm-hmm. They'll see your work and they're like, this is amazing. As soon as you send your CV with your picture, they're like, I wouldn't hear from people. And there were companies that I would try and apply again. And I was blocked. They wouldn't wow. even want to hear from me. Wow. And so I didn't have a choice of what I was going to, I just had to keep doing this job until something gave. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was working on my own company. So the company I have today, which is Ultraviv, 
it took on many roles. It has had many different names. It has, I've always been in the back of my mind, I'm going to have this company. I tried to do it with my spouse. This is a very unstable, violent person, so it didn't work out. But I was constantly working on my company, working little by little. I was developing on the side in addition to working an insane amount of hours and an insane amount of output. Like I would talk to other people in the industry who were in the conventional, um, you know, mainstream fashion industry. They're like, girl, what are you doing? <laughs> this is, this is, I mean, no, <laughs> no one does that. Like 300 designs per year. Right. Wow. Right. And this, we were one of the pioneering companies within the modest fashion industry. And I, and that's one of the reasons why I stuck to it so much. I believed in the vision of the company, but there comes a point where it's, it, it was hurting me more than anything else. Mm. I really wanted to help them see their vision and develop their vision. But then it came to a point where I was like, well, Thalassam, what about you? Right. Don't you want to build your dreams? And there's a point where you also, I was wrestling with, do I not believe in myself enough? If I can do it for them, right. I can do it for myself. And the same thing, and personally, don't I love myself enough to deserve better? So that's when I started, okay, you need to start working on your own thing. So I um, had my own work shown in um, the Louvre in Paris, in Berlin, in this ethical fashion show. I was uh, selected to present my work at this flagship store in Madrid in in Spain. Um, It was a designer. He's one of the premier or one of the first ethical fashion designers in Spain, Adolfo Dominguez, and he had a program for creative. So he let us present our collections in his flagship store. I took every opportunity I could to get experience and get exposure for my own work and keep it moving. I was not going to let my own dreams die. Now, tell us about that. How did you get into sustainable fashion? Because this is something that's I don't I won't say completely new, but I mean you hear more about it now than you have I would say before. For so for for me, I I really want to use the word regenerative regenerative fashion. Mm-hmm. Because sustainable literally means just like sustaining what's just keeping everything the way it is in a way. When you think about the word technically what sustainable means, just right. keep everything the you know, sustain what what is, yeah. right? We think of regenerative, you're you're taking on the 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 example of nature mm-hmm. of the way naturally things are like everything it has to, we have to create something we think of the entire life cycle of the garment or anything we do so when we're getting our resources we can't extract every single thing mm-hmm. from the earth we're thinking about how things are made you cannot exploit people to produce anything mm-hmm. and when you're done with this product whatever it is can it be regenerated can it be biodegradable Mm-hmm. be compostable and then you can from that compost from that you can create a n- new materials mm-hmm. right and it's something that doesn't extract and take away it adds right, right. it adds and it, it's something that um i want to think about when i think about fashion mm-hmm. and also think about it in a way where and this is something where I take from my faith that there's a phrase in the Quran that says um the divine tells us to do what is beautiful so I try to, so looking at my work or looking at even our interactions with people, am I doing something, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, is it a beauty? So if I'm creating, if we're talking about fashion and I haven't paid my workers, I am using textiles that were produced and they're full of harmful toxins. The people who had to work to produce them have been um, affected by those toxins. Mm-hmm. 
have I just extracted all the resources from the planet to make this product? Have I um, killed animals for it? There's no beauty in that product now. Right. So that's is the, the principles that I apply to my work. So, and being as someone that is also guided by my faith, I have to think about that. I'm responsible for what I've done in this life. Right. Can I stand before God and say, what I've done, I have, you know, uh, can I, can I, um, how do I ra rationalize that? Right. Let's say I was not paying workers. Let's say I was um, using fabrics that had this horrible um, outgassing in the factories where they're made. How am I going to respond to that? Right. right. So I have to think of, if I'm trying to talk, talk about beauty, I'm creating less collections, right? So that's one of the things I learned when I was working with this company, even though we, employed refugees. Uh, I strive very hard to make sure we're using as many um, um, textiles from renewable sources. I always push these things because it is part of my faith. And for me, I'm taking a step. When I got to a place with them, I'm like, they're not, I want to do more. I need to do it on my own. Mm. So with my own company, I'm thinking about that. And especially as my experiences being a domestic abuse survivor, I include other aspects into my company. So it's three parts that I include. It's ethical women's wear and so i'm thinking making sure it's it's harder i have to make sure is this textile safe is this textile from renewable sources who's making these garments so i personally go and visit the the text uh the factories where i'm going to produce so currently the my clothing collection the capsule collection i was going to launch this spring is on hold for obvious reasons for covid the, the factory I work with in Spain and Valencia is closed right now. I hope they'll reopen soon and I can go ahead with my plans to launch my collection. I've visited them on several occasions. I know them. They're a family-run factory. I've seen how they work. I've seen how the artisans are treated. I mean, I hate to use the word garment workers. These are artisans. Right. They create right. art. Right. And they need to be appreciated as such. So that's one aspect, ethical women's wear. Wellness is extremely important. That's from my experience of being burnt out. That's from my experience of dealing with trauma post um, domestic abuse. Yeah. I think about the women who I design for, there are other aspects of their life that, that are of concern with them. If they're not feeling their best, if they're not feeling vibrant, nothing else is gonna, nothing else matters. That has to come first. So I make sure that I um, provide um, it, um, inspiration and, um, ideas about wellness, um, suggestions. I'm, a, I'm vegan. I'm plant-based. I use holistic ways to heal myself. And I like to share that with others. And, um, currently right now, since I'm unable to produce the collections, I pivoted and I produce organic, um, face masks, for, uh, organic cloth face masks for people right now with COVID because we need to be protected. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And especially I'm thinking about our communities. Black communities, communities of color, we are most mm -hmm. susceptible to life-threatening diseases mm -hmm. because of everything we're under. We're in, in facing racism and violence on a daily basis and stress. Right. And you couple that, that affects your immunity. You drop your immunity, you are susceptible to disease. Absolutely. So I'm thinking about them. What can I do now to serve my community? I need to make sure they be protected. I am a designer, I can design masks. I'm gonna do that for now. So that's the wellness aspect. And the third aspect is community. When a woman is supported, she can thrive. When she has healthy connections, she can thrive. So these are the things I'm trying to cultivate with UltraVive. And UltraVive really 
is something that was born out of my experience. It was 2014. This is about a year before I left my marriage. I was literally feeling debt. And I was still trying to um, um, develop my company. I was like, what am I going to name it? Because other things have not worked. I wasn't, it wasn't resonating with me. I was like, how do I want to feel in this moment? I want to feel alive and free. I want to feel vibrant, but I can't put a name to this company or um, an ethos to this company if I'm not feeling it and practicing it myself. So I developed the name Ultra Vive, which ultra means just like the extreme beyond. And then Vive that comes from French, which means to live. So this incredible life experience, like you are living and at this very high vibrational level. I was like, if I'm going to live that, if I'm going to promote that, that's what my company's about, I have to do it. So I left my marriage and I left my job. I'm, if I'm going to tell others to be radical in their self-care and radical in their expression of themselves, I have to be doing it myself. Right. And that's what I did. Right. And that's what I'm about. It's still in its nascent, it's in the beginning stages, but this is the vision I have for it. And every day I'm just one step, one step, one step. That's beautiful. You know, and this is just me being a little silly. When you were describing what the name uh, meant, I immediately thought of, oh, you live in your best life. Like I immediately (laughs) thought of that phrase as you described the name of it. I I think it's dope. It sounds amazing. Yeah, all of it. All of it. It's it's um, it's removing everything that doesn't. I mean, we're I mean. We're here for many reasons, and it's very clear. It's like you are here to to be who you're meant to be, mm-hmm. right? We are blessed with gifts, and we are supposed to be able to vibrate. When we are vibrating at our highest frequency, that's healthy, that's vibrant, that's love, that's joy, and that energy can use be used to heal and bring beauty to the world mm-hmm. and bring light to the world. Absolutely. And the other mission, we're here, and this is very something that's rooted strongly in my faith, we're here as guardians and protectors. Mm-hmm. That's right. it. We come here to make sure that we are, people are protected and cared for, and the environment as well. Yep. If people are like, and this is what gets me so, I guess what gets me all the time, people are like, I don't know what my purpose is, I don't know what to do. I was like, look around you. Right. Right. Yo, just open the paper and, and just, there's like problems, like after problems, pick one, make it your mission. Yep. There you mm-hmm. go. <laughs> Take your gifts, apply it to this mission, and go. That's right. all you have to do. Right. If everyone did that, we wouldn't be in a situation we're in right now. Yeah. Mm. We have to be, we're like on watch. We should be on watch. We should be on very tightly knit communities. We, we are like, and I don't want to use the word task force, but like, we're like on guard and we're like, we're out there right. making sure that every needs, all the needs of our communities are met. Absolutely. And we're also being the example. So that also means we have to take the time for our own self care and our own well being. Mm-hmm. Because everything, we, we lead by example. Absolutely. You know, I can't be talking all this stuff and I'm not doing it myself. Right. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't work. Yeah. Right. But for me, a lot of times I had to take pause, uh, take some time to um, reflect and put things into, protect, into practice. So my regret, like me following my dreams, it's been a, sl- I mean, slow pro- a process. I don't, I mean, we're all in different timelines, but I'm okay with that right. because I want to make sure that everything I'm saying and doing is in alignment. Right. And, I'm, and I'm not in a rush to get to the destination. I'm not in a rush to, I don't care about being popular. Mm-hmm. I don't, I've never been popular. Mm-hmm. I've never, none of that. <laughs> you know, I don't care about that. I want to make sure that everything I'm doing is in alignment with what I believe to be 
true and important. And also to remember, I have to answer to my maker. So that's all I'm worried about. I don't care if you don't like me. I don't care if you think I'm doing is, it's just, what is she doing? I don't understand it. I don't care. I understand it. I believe it. I love it. And I know that I'm thinking deeply intentionally about it to make sure it's not harming anyone. If anything, I want to make sure it brings about wellness and it brings some beauty, some light into this world. And all of this is preparation, you know, for the the greater goal. So kudos to you. Um, Part of your your mission of giving back, you also were a fashion contributor for uh, Sisters Magazine. It was a magazine for fabulous Muslim women. Tell us about that experience. So um, they contacted me and they asked me to write for just, um, they want to have a fashion designer or someone who's in the fashion industry because this is at a time where this is like 2008, I think I was reading for 2008, 2012. And this is a time where people started taking notice like, oh, this modest fashion, this Islamic fashion. Oh, this is like a thing now. Like this isn't just like a trend, this is a thing. And people, there are even still some fashion commentators and historians who will think like, oh, it's a trend. I was like, really? Um, Where the whole fashion, in modest fashion industry is valued at billions of dollars. Yes. Billions, even, not, even if not $1 trillion. And like in 2015, Muslim women alone spent a close to $44 billion just on modest fashion. Wow. That's not a trend. Right. For me, and also thinking about on the environmental spec, on the environmental aspect of that, in the U.S. alone, we throw away 11 million tons of textiles that end up in the landfills. So I'm thinking like of all those women who shopped that, who spent that money, I was like, how many of them were buying from socially and environmentally responsible brands that were thinking about the life cycle of the garment. And within that industry, the ethical fashion industry or sustainable fashion industry or whatever, however you want to describe it, there aren't many brands who are thinking about Muslim women Mm -hmm. or people who are women who want to dress in a modest way or have a different, they want to dress in a modest way and a modern way. Right. right? So I was like, well, I definitely want to be that person. So anyways, going back to the writing for them. So this is like booming right now. So I started working and writing a column and the people would write in and ask questions and I would respond to it and write articles for them. Um, again, this came to a point, I can only do so much. So I'm working full time as creative director. I am the main, I'm the only source of income for my family. I'm managing that and then writing for them. And it was just, and the thing is I wanted to be collaborating. Right. I tried very hard to collaborate with other bloggers in that modest fashion industry. Um, but there, it was always just me, always just me. So I couldn't continue with them. I wanted to, um, but whenever, whenever I could, I would offer insight or offer support or collaborate on a project. But I think it's really important to collaborate together, um, to join our, um, just, just as a collective to bring our creative, um, ideas together. You know what this reminds me of too. Um, Stan and I had the we're very fortunate to attend day one event with um, some Muslim brothers and sisters who uh, had yeah, their New yeah. Year's event. In um, a very strong Muslim community, and this was my first time, my first experience having attending an event. And these women, when Man. when you told me about the, how much money that Muslim we women felt spent, so underdressed, honey. When I tell you, <laughs> like, like, oh my god, fabulous. Yeah, it was fabulous. Amazing. It was amazing. Like. Like, that's how you do it. Yeah. And, you know, it was I mean, I think we had so much conversation that night about 
how amazing everyone looked. Oh my God. And I can't remember the last time we've gone somewhere and that was the conversation almost the whole night. But when we went the day one in Baltimore, um, shout out to, uh, I think it's this is, um, Naima and, um, her family and, uh, uh, the leftist, uh, a Muslim band who's super dope, um, who I met and still, uh, keep in touch with to this day. They Man, showed up oh and showed out. God. Yeah, honey. it was amazing. <laughs> it was just super dope. So like, you know, listening to your story and, and when you talk about like, uh, you know, the money, um, that the community, uh, spends on fashion, um, you know, I, I don't think that's common knowledge, but like, please believe when I tell you, we saw it that night. We was like, because <laughs> y'all, man, we walked in, we were like, oh, y'all do this. Like, I this mean, don't look like a one time. It looks like y'all are very comfortable. Like, the, y'all were, y'all were ready. And the men <laughs> too. The men didn't yeah, shy everybody. away. Yeah. And what, and what was so key about that experience was the fact that, um, you know, just like you said, like, you know, for, uh, you know, for your aunts when they would prepare for church. Like these ladies, when I say dress to the nines, I mean from the hijab to the, uh, just everything, just glittering, <laughs> just shining. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing to see. It was amazing. Right. And I think people just, you know, people just don't know. They yeah, like, you know how sometimes you go to a, uh, go to a live event and you can kind of tell who the, who the, the special guests who the entertainers are, right? <laughs> like you can kind of tell because right. of how they look. They just have this aura. When everybody. I tell you, when I tell you everybody, <laughs> and like I, man, it was a crapshoot. Like, um, could be nope, wrong table. Okay, I guess. Oh wow. Okay, all right. Like everybody and was I think a star. Like folks it was amazing. Don't know because all you know, yeah. people are so stuck on the veil, right? Mm-hmm. They're just and they can't they can't go beyond that, right? And just they don't bother to to look, research, or even ask, yeah. you know, or to learn more. It's just different, and so you know, like that, like most things that are different, um, people people feel what they don't understand, so they don't bother to, to uh, even try to understand. Um, but but yeah, but I'm sorry. No, that's one of the reasons why I I stayed with the positions for so long. Um, not only because I did believe in in the mission of their company, but also because this was. I mean, for so long being um, marginalized for so long for um, being a Muslim woman um, and now being part of like help, helping to establish an industry, mm-hmm. being one of the first few companies to have an industry. And when you look at the Muslim, uh, the modest fashion industry, the Muslim fashion industry, and look at the companies that are leading it. I was the only one in executive position that was a Muslim woman of color. Right. So, and so for me, I was like, this is really important to help establish this industry and also um, create solutions for women who have not been represented. There was nothing for us to wear. There were not companies who were reflecting um, our needs or our, what we were looking for. So I was like, no, I have a responsibility to my community. So that was the other reasons I hung on for so long. I was like, I want to help Grant, like I was saying earlier, establishes working with other, and a lot of help came from um, the bloggers making it more visible. Like I didn't have this growing up, right? I didn't have um, these. Uh, like you're saying, you're going to this event and people are like showing up and showing. Up. I mean, they, I mean, just really proud and right. just being very. I mean, um, 
unapologetic. I mm-hmm. growing up, that was not the case. Right. That was not the case. I would either have my scarf ripped off, I would be beat up for it. Mm-hmm. It was not cool to be Muslim. It was not cool to be dropped. None of that. Right. I didn't have any of those figures and role models in my life. I'm not talking, I'm not discrediting my mother or anyone else, but you're a young girl growing up, going to high school, going to junior high. I mean, you need other peers or maybe someone just a little older than you showing you what that could look like, what's possible. And that wasn't there. We didn't, I didn't, I didn't see myself reflected in magazines. I didn't see myself reflected anywhere. Mm-hmm. So then this was so important thinking of the younger women and men coming out. I was like, no, we need to establish this and mm-hmm. show that and be proud of who we are and show this is another option. And not only for people who are Muslim, but for anyone, because right. you look at Absolutely. the fashion industry, there's like one expression, right? Right. You have to be this size, this color, this dress like this, think like this. If you're not in this box, a very narrow box, you yeah. might as well not exist, basically. Right. So it's very important to open up the language, open up the space so that we could find representation for it. We're creating our own space, basically, right. and disrupting everything. Right. Right. And yet still developing, because, I mean, you, uh, developing yeah. as a person, you recently were the recipient of the 202 Creates Spring Cohort, which is an entrepreneurship residency program, um, creating sustainable fashion under the Ultra Vive brand. And so, um, you know, we are so excited with what you um, come up with next. Um, granted, in, in this, the current state that we're in, um, so looking forward to seeing your the release of your of your line and why don't you tell us about um um what do you see next and i know that's so hard the difficult question because again this current state that we're in and people are slowly as people slowly begin to open up what do you foresee for ultra vive so just looking at this year and i'm like literally looking at this week you know right. um, so i'm always thinking about the three the three-prong approach i have my company it's the ethical uh, women's wear, the wellness, the community. So for example, this week on Saturday, um, my middle sister, she's a professor at uh, Winston-Salem State University mm-hmm. in the Department of History, Politics, and Social Justice. She is holding, hosting on my channel and Instagram um, an introduction to understanding race and racism in this country. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hopefully want to be able to do with her because she's so busy <laughs> um, is to have a series of conversations or classes to offer that education support to my community. And um, that's one of the ways I want to help there. I also, me showing up more as myself and not being afraid. I mean, I, even as much as throughout this conversation we're talking, it seems like, Oh, she's super fearless. And I do because I've always been criticized and ostracized for who I am. So it's me. How am I going to show up more as myself? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Bring out my voice more. There's so many things I keep back, not hold back. Um, that's one side I want to develop more in the wellness space. I do have another product launch coming out in the wellness space. So how can I support my community more in their wellness and help them boost their immunity, feel more vibrant. So that's something coming soon. I can't really talk about it yet, but that's something coming soon. Again, I'm still doing the organic face cloth mask. That's still, uh, there. And then of course the launch for, uh, my clothing collection is more towards down the line. That just depends on how the situation progresses. Right. But um, also trying, as far as the community, in addition to holding hosting as many types of programs and experiences that people can feel seen and heard and supported, then also where can I collaborate with others? Where can I work with others so that we can... Um, 
just become more of a tighter community, more of a supportive community. Um, so these are some of the things I'm thinking about for this year. Awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so, so very much. Really this was you. awesome. So eye-opening. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, no, this the, was... the energy was great too. I, I you know, um, I think with the with the current state of things and how the world, you know, like the world is literally on fire right now, right? And um I'd be lying if I said that I woke up today just like my usual self. But um hearing stories like yours. And like some of the the many other people we've been blessed to interview, it's, it's inspiring. It's um, it's motivational. You know, it's a lot of different things. So thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Artistry, where art meets industry. This podcast has been brought to you by Substantial Art and Music. For more information, please visit www.subartmusic.com. You can also follow us on social media at Subart Music. We'll see you soon, but talk to you soon. Peace.